It's super exciting. Last week, OpenAI released GPT-3, the largest language model ever released. We had a fantastic conversation about this today. Now, the most exciting thing about the model isn't its sheer size, but that it's only been trained to do language modeling, but it can do any number of NLP tasks out of the box without any fine tuning. And that working in this kind of precision has never been seen before. And it raises many questions about the future of building NLP models and how we will interact with them in the future. GPT-3 is the biggest language model ever produced, 175 billion parameters. You need a supercomputer to train it, and OpenAI has done exactly that. GPT-3 is a 175 billion parameter neural network, 10 times larger than the biggest artificial neural network that had ever been trained before now. So how do they train such an enormous model? This is powered by the 0-2 optimizations in Microsoft's open source DeepSpeed library. There's been a lot of research in efficiently scaling training to hundreds or thousands of GPUs. The foundational ideas of this research are data parallelism, where we copy the model on each GPU and then send each GPU a different batch of data, and model parallelism, where we split the model up onto different GPUs. Model parallelism is a necessary component of this because we can only fit a 1.4 billion parameter model on a single NVIDIA V100 GPU that has 32 gigabytes of memory. So the next step in this story was the development of pipeline parallelism, most famously implemented in Google's G-Pipe, which was used to hit state-of-the-art ImageNet accuracy with 557 million parameters. G-Pipe partitions the mini-batches such that different subsets of a model split on multiple GPUs have something to do while they're waiting for the sequential forward and backward passes through the network to finish. In a similar vein, Zero recognizes the inefficiency with how data parallelism partitions training memory across accelerators. If we're splitting our model across multiple accelerators, we don't need each one to hold the entire set of optimizer states, gradients, and parameters. So to solve this inefficiency, Zero uses a dynamic scheduling of optimizer state, gradients, and parameters to communicate between multiple GPUs. The first iteration of Zero had produced Turing NLG, a 17 billion parameter language model that continued to improve the perplexity metric for autoregressive language modeling from the previous iteration, which was NVIDIA's Megatron LM at 8.3 billion parameters. This was the result of implementing the optimizer state memory reductions in Zero 01. While Zero 02 further implements the gradient and parameter optimizations as well. The bar chart in their blog post highlights the enormous gains from Zero 01 to 02, which evidences the training differences between Turing NLG and GPT-3. GPT-3 is an autoregressive language model, as opposed to a denoising autoencoder like BERT. And in today's conversation, we talk about some of the comparative differences between those two architectures of language model. There's been such an incredible amount of progress in language processing, especially using neural networks. It kind of started in about 2013 when Mikhailov introduced word to vec and that was a distributed representation for words, which was learned in a self-supervised way based on the context. And then we had LSTM-type language models, and they were learning a sequential representation of tokens through time, and there were bidirectional variants of this. A really cool thing that happened in about 2018 was Jeremy Howard and Sebastian Ruder released ULM Fit, and that introduced transfer learning to natural language processing. Word to Vec technically is transfer learning, but it was transfer learning in the sense of 
the language model was learning dependencies between a whole bunch of tokens, not individual tokens. And then, of course, it could be fine-tuned on a downstream task. Um, attention is all you need. Introduce transformers. And transformers are these incredible kind of routing machines. They can learn dependencies between any tokens in the input and then it goes through this successive clever routing system which is learned as part of the training process. In the original recurrent neural networks, the tokens in the input sequence couldn't directly attend to each other and that meant that those models suffered from catastrophic forgetting and also they were quite difficult to train because they had vanishing and exploding gradients. So Transformers came along and it was a different paradigm. You could learn a complex hierarchy of relationships directly between the tokens. It was no longer this sequential representation where you only knew what happened at one time step backwards. It was a real paradigm shift. And straight away, these language processing models produced state-of-the-art results across the board. Generally speaking, there are two architectural patterns that we see with these Transformers architectures. The first is the autoregressive pattern, where the model is just predicting the next word and the next word and the next word, and the, the answer from the previous prediction gets fed into the model the next time around. The other type of model is what's called a denoising autoencoder, like BERT and Roberta and ExcelNet. And what these do is you feed in an input sentence and then you... Typically, you add some noise to it and then you say what you expect. So these things seem to be appropriate for things like question answering when you need to point to spans in your input sequence, for example, if you're doing in-span question answering. The autoregressive models are quite attractive because you can just keep generating data forever. So they seem appropriate for natural language generation. One of the things I wanted to explore today was the commercial utility of this. Is this something that can help us in industry? Or is this something which is mainly an academic endeavor and only in reach for the very top uh, tech companies like Microsoft and Google? Now, Yannick did an incredible video about GPT-3 last week on his channel. And he's starting to develop a bit of a name for himself online. Lightspeed Yannick, you might say. Within hours of the paper being released, he had the video uh, out on his YouTube channel, and it was even linked by uh, Andre Kapathy, the director of AI at Tesla, so it's incredible. I've cut about five minutes of the most descriptive elements out of Yannick's video on GPT-3, and I'm going to play them now. I think it will serve as a good refresher for the topic. This paper is basically an investigation into what you can do with giant language models. Now, this language model is an order of magnitude larger than anyone has ever built a language model, and it can do some absolutely crazy things. This paper is basically an investigation into what you can do with giant language models. Now, this language model is an order of magnitude larger than anyone has ever built a language model, and it can do some absolutely crazy things. So we'll basically go over the architecture, over what the model does, and over the experimental results. It turns out that if you train a language model on enough data, it is able to solve NLP tasks that it has never seen just out of the box. So a language model, let's just take an example, this sentence right here, just the sentence as such, like third, humans do not require large supervised data sets to learn most language tasks, right? This is an English sentence and a language model would be a model that if you cross out a portion from the end here, like this right here, it would be able to tell you what comes next. So in a language model, you would input this part right here 
and it will tell you the next word is datasets. So that's basically all a language model does. And once you've trained one, you can basically generate word after word after word from it. Or you can ask it a question like which word is most likely to come next or more likely. So a language model is nothing but a model that can kind of generate language in a probabilistic way. And the cool thing about language models is that you can train it on any sort of text data. And that's what they do here. So they train a language model on giant amounts of data. Just compare this to a language model like BERT. BERT required this much flops to train. And these this is a log scale. <laughs> so this is right here, this is several orders of magnitude, uh, larger and bigger model and is trained for way longer on this text. So naturally, it is going to be a lot better at language modeling. You can see right here, the size of these models that they trained on. Remember, the previous largest language model, the Turing NLG of Microsoft, had something like 17 billion parameters. So it would be comparable to this right here. Whereas GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters, which <laughs> this is absolutely crazy. This is an order of magnitude higher than anything that's ever existed. And if you look at the last GPT, the GPT-2 model, that if you remember, I've made a video about it, is too dangerous to be released. Well, now it has been released, but was too dangerous to be released. It clocked in at about 1.5 billion parameters. But essentially, this is an autoregressive language model. So it's not like BERT. It's not bidirectional. It is autoregressive. It goes from left to right. It always produces the next word. It is like GPT-2. They even say this. They say, we use the same model and architecture as GPT-2. They just have more layers and wider layers and more data to train it on. So with something like BERT, you would do first pre-train. So there you would, this is the language modeling right here, this pre-training phase, where you teach BERT about the English language by just feeding it a lot of data. And then second, you had a step called fine tuning. So on the second one, you'd have something like the task you're actually interested in. And let's say the task you're actually interested in is sentiment classification. So in sentiment classification, you have like a sentence like blah, blah, blah. And you want to know, is that a positive sentiment? Like is it a happy sentence or is it a sad sentence? And you would have a database of labeled instances of that. So in this database, you'd have a bunch of sentences. And for each one, you would know, is it good? Is it, is it positive or is it negative? And then you'd have like a smaller test set right here. You would basically take this pre-trained model, train it, on this data set in a supervised machine learning way and then test it on this test set right here. This is called fine tuning. What they are interested in is basically to take the pre-trained model and directly go and evaluate it on the test data set in a sort of a zero shot fashion. Your language model that you pre-trained and you just input the following text. You input what they call a task description and a prompt. So this is the input and you're simply ask the model as a language model to predict the next word. It's just what comes here. Now what you're counting on is basically that in the training data, the model has seen 
a structure like this enough to understand what's going on so that in the training data somewhere in the internet there was the structure of translate something to something and then there would be a word here of something and you know it, it kind of has to realize that this goes here like that the next word so basically what you're asking it is if you were to find this text on a website or on wikipedia or in any of the books data set if you were to find this piece of text what would be the next word in that piece of text you simply input this as a string so not only do you have the task description and the prompt right here but you also have one example and the example so the example is going to come from the training data set of the task that you're interested in but the important part is you never train on it. You never explicitly train on that example. You simply put it in the context. So you simply put this string. So translate English to French, new line. Sea otter uh, is l'outre de mer, new line. Cheese is what? You simply input that string into the model as a language model and you ask it, what's the next word right here? Okay, so I hope I hope this is clear. This is what they call kind of one-shot generalization. And by one-shot, they basically mean you simply provide this thing in the context of the model as a language model. Now, the, the advantage here is immediately clear that you only have to train one model then and then basically at inference time, you can just input the task description and the sort of training data for the task into its its evaluation context and the task itself i think what it does is it will simply take all of this and it will go to its own training data which it has stored in its weights and it will filter the training data and basically take out the the things that sort of pattern match sort of regex match in a fuzzy way to this context and then it will kind of interpolate these training examples in order to come up with the answer i don't think there is reasoning happening here i was looking at some of the comments actually on the video and some of them make for interesting reading yannick says he gets better comments on his youtube videos than he does from conferences when he submits his papers here are some of the reviews so as you can see this is uh, yannick's video that he published and it's been viewed nearly 28,000 times, 1.2 thousand upvotes, and nine people downvoted it. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Fuck you. Alex Bravo chips in with T6, one trillion text-to-text -text transfer transformer, the next model coming out of Google. Mallow Marsh comments that just looking at the wall of authors at the beginning is making me sweat. Some person with an incomprehensible YouTube name and a human adversarial example as a profile picture adds, I don't think the intuition of the model essentially just storing all the training data in a quasi lookup table is correct. If anything, the model acts as a very elaborate compression algorithm. Also, modeling the semantic structure of the language needed to pass the natural language model input certainly is achieved in a way that doesn't resemble a plain lookup table. Okay, so you seem to lose his grammatical um, 
fidelity towards the end of that message, but you get the idea. And Yannick replies, yes, there's an argument to be made for that. I'm not only saying they're plain lookup tables, but more like fuzzy lookup and interpolation tables. My main point is that all of these tasks where the model performs well can be explained by lookup and interpolation. And there's none where the model succeeds where you'd have to say it was due to reasoning abilities. And this seems to be the really clever thing about GPT-3. What it does is it internalizes all of the information you give it and it deconstructs it and packs it into some internal representation. And then when you ask it to go and do something for you, it will go and find all of the information it was trained on and it will reconstruct it by interpolating between all of the internal structures that it learned. Super clever stuff. Happy Teacher says, wow, it's incredible how fast you are. I agree with you, Happy Teacher. It really is. <laughs> Gary Blauer says, continuing to expand the class of problems which can be solved by pattern recognition won't get us all the way to artificial general intelligence, but it's very interesting and impressive nonetheless. This is a remarkable example. He then goes on to quote Cholet, without crediting Cholet, I might say, any problem can be treated as a pattern recognition problem if your training data covers a sufficiently dense sampling of the problem space. What's interesting is what happens when your training data is sparse. Indeed. Poodle Chen says, I like to think of language models as really smart parrots. They repeat what you've said. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Poodle Chen. We like that. Dodon Co also unwittingly quotes Francois Cholet. 175 billion parameters. Sometimes I feel that that's like trying to reach the moon by just building higher and higher skyscrapers until we get there. He said reach the moon twice. I think uh, this might have been generated with GPT-3. Russian person says, I think that a lot of people missed the news that Microsoft fired all of their journalists right after GPT-3. Indeed, they did. Don't need them anymore. Andrew Owens says, not AGI. Enjoy watching your take on these papers. I usually watch the video at 1.75 times normal speed. It makes me feel more comfortable with your sloppy handwriting. I can apologize on behalf of Yannick. His handwriting is shit. Sean Hardy says, phenomenal analysis. You really make this field approachable to pre-university students like myself. Christian Garcia says, I was thinking about the addition being memorized argument, which I totally agree with. And it reminded me that we humans also tend to replace a lot of logic with memory. For example, multiplication tables. Anecdotally, I think I've memorized various combinations of numbers that add up to 10, five plus five, six plus four, seven plus three. Deep learning still needs a good way to do logic reasoning. But what if I have a vast amount of knowledge that is a good portion of human-like intelligence? Well, this is one of the things that we talked about in the show today that there are so many things that initially we need to reason about using our system too, but then it seems to get distilled and baked into a system one program. Borislav Dzodzo says, sorry to crash the Mensa party, but isn't the prediction of the next word inherently a shallow target? I don't know how to exactly formulate a deeper thought target, but perhaps a whole sentence prediction with blur or some other and better similarity measure would do the trick. And the trick would only work if transformers were inherently good at modeling reasoning. Some of the thoughts that come to mind is the prediction of any sentence that would take place in the future. And the further in the future, if the text it takes place, the bigger the reward. Since I don't have the supercomputers and the YouTube comments are not cited, maybe you can just tell me why I'm wrong or silently implement something if you think I'm right. 
And Yannick says, well, the problem with Blur is that it's not differentiable. So you'd essentially have to do reinforcement learning, and people have done that. As for predicting longer sequences, you'd have to backpropagate through multiple invocations of this already giant model. So that's out of the question to predict a single word that's further in the future than the next word, and you can do that, but it will likely increase your variance more than it will benefit your model. Good ideas, though. And good old Herp Derpingson, Herp, your comments are always legendary. You say a single part of DL research is just flexing how many GPU hours you can afford. Very true. Unfortunately, I can't afford very many. I hope you have fun of us analyzing the hype and the stories around GPT-3. And we do get into a fair bit of various topics here, so I had fun doing this. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll see you back next week. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel uh, with me, Tim Scarf, and my two compadres, Yannick Kilcher and Connor Shorten. It's been a really exciting week because OpenAI have released yet another paper. Microsoft have introduced some new approaches for training these huge language models. As you guys have done videos about this on your YouTube channels. But last week, Yannick, you actually made a, a video on GPT-3. And how many views has it got? 20,000? 20, 23,000 as of now. It's crazy. That is um, incredible. Is that your most popular video to date? No, no. Attention is all you need is the most popular by far. But it's been up <laughs> since uh, 2017 or so. Awesome. So what did you guys think about GPT-3? I was surprised just by, by the sheer publicity of it. Because <clears throat> so GPT-2, I think the, a lot of the publicity was sort of manufactured by this fact that it was, oh, it's too dangerous to release. And uh, you remember all of this, right? It's, it's like, oh, we're concerned about the ethical, you know, the bad applications. If we release this, it's so dangerous. <laughs> it seems that none of that is necessary with GPT-3. It just kind of took off by itself. And I think the most surprising thing was that people probably thought, that this trend that you could just scale up would have to end at some point. And I think GPT-3 just not only does it show that you can push it another order of magnitude, but it kind of fortifies the trend that we could probably do this another two or three orders of magnitude. I, I think that's a lot of, not only, you know, it's not only this order of magnitude, it, it, it is such an indication for more and more and more scaling and that's still going to benefit us a lot is it showing signs of slowing down yeah it's not that's the crazy part right it's 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 not at all it's almost it's it's like pretty much a complete trajectory down like they have this plot of the perplexity and it just goes down and you might think that their you know their largest model kind of breaks the trend a bit but then if you look at the training curve it's not it doesn't even look converged yet and they haven't, they haven't even gotten through a full epoch on their big corpus. Yeah. So Thomas Wolf, we did a, a video about his presentation on YouTube, and we still haven't put it live. So eventually <laughs> we'll put that live. And he cited uh, Yovel, you know, one of the Israeli researchers, and he was talking yeah. about this phase change in language models. So they asked it questions like, uh, this year is later than this year, this year is later than this year. And they created this kind of tricks showing how good the language model was at answering 
questions. And, and of course, it's just memorization. I, I think these, these folks were arguing that there's a phase change past a certain point where it's actually learning to reason. But of course, it doesn't even know that a year is a number. It's just a, it's just a token. And if you train on enough data, it will know that 1976 is after 1945. So what's it doing really? Memorization and generalization, generally, these language models, they just memorize in their parameters, but it's still useful, right? Even if it is memorizing it. That's kind of the most criticism I've gotten on my video is that I argue that there is a you know that it's basically just memorizing the training data and i might maybe i should have expressed that more precisely what i mean basically is that it is memorizing the training data in, in like a fuzzy way so it's mem it's memorizing little snippets it's memorizing grammar constructs and so on uh, that's what i that's what i mean by memorizing kind of in in this distributed way but very much tied to the training data and there thereby it it can like just use these memorized you know, I take the grammar construct from this sentence and I know that these two people often occur together and I know this fact and so on. So it's, I think the memor this, this sort of memorization will lead to generalization because what you essentially learn is how to interpolate between the, what you've seen in training. You're saying generalization, but the thing that you said in your video was that it's not reasoning. It's memorizing. Now, what you've just described is quite interesting because you're saying, okay, it's not memorizing, it's deconstructing. And it's cleverly interpolating between different instances of reconstructed sentences, and that will make it generalize. At what point does that become reasoning or will it never become reasoning? Well, it's philosophy, right? But, but they have some interesting experiments in the paper where they, for example, show that the model can unscramble a word so you, you you know you take the scram you give the, some examples right it's scrambled word unscrambled or scrambled word unscrambled and they say look or at least that's the argument I, I don't know their precise formulation but someone might say look the model has learned what it means to unscramble a word and i'm all i'm saying is that if you have like a perfect language model and or you condition on these things it will just output whatever word has the highest probability given those word pieces, right? So it's absolutely not surprising to me. And it doesn't mean that it has learned to reason. A much better experiment would be to learn to scramble a word, right? So, so it's the same experiment. If the model has learned to reason across the English language, really understand what it means to scramble a word and can actually infer this from this in-context learning, it should be as good scrambling as unscrambling words. So are you arguing it, it should be symmetric? So if it can do one thing, it should be able to do the yes, same thing Yes, it should backwards. be quite symmetric in that. But so any asymmetry in scrambling versus unscrambling would come from the fact that it is a very good English language model, right? Because if it can unscramble, there's a, that's two effects. That's for one, it understands what unscrambling means. And the second effect is it just knows a lot of English words. But if you are going to scramble words, now your knowledge of English doesn't help you because the scrambled word is probably not an English word. So you now need to rely on the understanding of what scrambling means. And therefore, if the model has learned to reason, I would expect it to perform scrambling as much as unscrambling. But unfortunately, they don't do this experiment. And I would be very, 
very surprised if the model could do the scrambling. I think there's a reason why the paper shows unscrambling. Yeah. But either way, do you think it's ever seen something like that in the training data set? Like it uses inevitably in, in the scramble. Yeah. How could it have ever seen something like that in, in the training data? But all it needs to know, right, is, is, that, is that the word pieces often occur together. It sees the scrambled version of inevitably and like the highest likelihood word after that is the same word, but in absence of the same, you can't produce the same word because it's not a word. So you'll produce the word in the correct order. I, I think that's much more what's going on than it has like seen some website where you scramble and unscramble things. The, the mechanics of this is quite interesting because we we spoke before we had this philosophical discussion about our frame of reference being a function of the convex hull of all the different words that we have. You know, these words are shared placeholders to things that we that we have a common understanding of. So straight away, the the frame of reference of these language models is truncated by virtue of the fact that it only has these word piece embeddings. Now the other thing is. I think it's a truncation in the formulation of the language model. It's just predicting the next word. And it seems a little bit bizarre to me that you're doing all of these examples, you know, one shot and two shot learning. So you're saying, here's an example of something, now continue. So, so I'm thinking, doesn't that limit the amount of use cases? I think it's because of the complexity of the decoding in the output space. Like if you only have to predict the next token, doesn't that give you a much less computationally complex output space than having to reconstruct the entire input with the predictions of the mass? Well, I think the transformers architecture has a quadratic layer-wise time complexity. Now, computationally, the autoregressive models are quite nice because they can just keep predicting forever because you just put the the previous prediction into the input of the next one and you could just you could generate an article of any size whereas with a BERT type model there are huge limitations obviously they have 512 inputs and but it does allow you to do things that you can't do with an autoregressive model like for example you can do question answering albeit on a very small input i think because in in BERT all the weights need to be able to contribute to all the outputs, right? Because you have one output for each element in the sequence. And in, in GPT-3, the entire apparatus of weights can just be focused on predicting that one next word. Yeah, on the subject of having scaled this up, we have this autoregressive compared to the mass language model, right? Just talking about the difference between, say, GPT and then BERT, and then what each of them are still good for. I still think the specialized architecture, I think BERT will always be better at uh, sentence classification, right? So there's going to be uses for the different specialized architecture. BERT has this bi-directional context. And I, I think there is an assertion there that on things like question and answering, you need a bi-directional context. One thing that I didn't get from watching your video on GPT-3, Yannick, was what was the input size? How many tokens was it? But I think I it think was 2048. Two, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we think with the reformer and transformer XL? Do you think if we have a longer context window, say 20,048, how not a power of two, but just a random number, but like, um, does that make this a lot stronger? Well, it, transformers XL was significantly better because of that reduction in context fragmentation. Probably yeah. depends on the task, right? But with respect to bidirectionality, I'm not, I'm not 
Yeah, okay. I mean, in that case, BERT is more powerful because it's like an all-one encoder, whereas as a GPT-2 is this, has this autoregressive property, but it is all also sort of bidirectional. It is unidirectional in the way it produces output, right? But it can still attend to everything. And probably something like reformer or longformer or whatever that, they trade off this ability to attend to anything in a precise way by trade this off for then getting longer input. It probably very much depends on the task and it might just work because if you think about it in natural language, does really every single you know position need to attend to every other position? It probably not. Probably you'll have like some hierarchical structure in your sentences and whatnot. I think we simply haven't found out yet how to make that concrete to say, oh, you know, you, because basically language is a tree sort of, because you can parse it in various ways, but then also sometimes it's really important what that one word is. So there needs to be an organization where you mainly attend to this tree structure, but can also attend to the individual words, but then you don't want to attend to all the words because that would be computationally hard and we're back to we can't learn sparse things the autoregressive models there is some kind of a filter right to to stop the model from cheating and to stop tokens from seeing things that are ahead of them now i don't think that exists yeah. in the bert type architecture because no, no, you, yeah. you just give it some some text and maybe like a noise or a masked version of the same text yeah. now architecturally something like question answering is reasonably straightforward to do in in the bi-directional architecture because you can say you could do in-span question answering by putting in a, a span of text and, and a question and saying this is this is where the answer should be. And you could train it on that downstream. So you wouldn't be able to do that on an autoaggressive model. No, no. But you could actually do the same with BERT that you do with GPT-3 in that you simply input the thing into BERT, just take the very last language model prediction and just shift all the things by one, append that. And so you could do the producing the same with BERT, but you're absolutely right. You couldn't do this. The GPT-3 cannot point to its own input like BERT can. That's, that's the power of BERT, yeah. Well, you another, have to ask yeah. GPT-3 in language what you want, would want to know, right? I think just one more interesting thing on the autoregressive and the mass language modeling is like SpanBert and how we're masking like spans instead of just tokens. And I think that's kind of interesting too. How much knowledge can you pack into the parameters of a language model? They're looking at just asking T5 questions based on giving it no extra context. And they show in Appendix C the gains when you use this span masking. And you see mm. a pretty huge gain with using this kind of training where you yep. mask out a span of tokens. Yeah, it's is it is this f even further than the full word masking, or is this the same? Because uh, so the, re yeah. the reasoning I can understand the reasoning behind the full word mask. It's where you say instead of just masking word pieces, we mask if we mask a word piece, we mask all the word pieces that belong to the same word. Usually, if you just mask one word piece, the other word pieces will give it away, right? It should <laughs> yeah. be so determined. So you don't really need to know to learn all of, you know, sentence structure and grammar and so on. You can just go on the other word pieces. And if you mask the whole word, you can't do that anymore. But is the span word, is that the same? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they explicitly are searching for that, but that is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, I thought it was where they just masked off a span of words. I can't remember how they arrived at the length of the span, but it might have been a length of two or three or something. Okay. Yeah, I think they call um, it like degeneration, how these language generators, they'll repeat the word. How <laughs> You see that yeah. all the time. Yeah. Do you think that would be alleviated by having, instead of predict the next one, you'd mask out five, you know, and predict five at a time? These are all variations because BERT is a denoising autoencoder. So it's super interesting when we covered the T5 paper or, or Thomas Wolfe's thing, they were talking about all these different variations on BERT and sometimes they were masking off words, sometimes they were masking off a span of words, sometimes they were replacing words or just adding noise. What they all seem to be doing is taking something that's on the manifold and pushing it off the manifold. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're trying to get to the bottom of like GPT versus BERT, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. BERT seems really interesting because I'm, I'm in industry at the moment and the number one thing that everyone wants to do is knowledge mining. So many companies have a wealth of information in unstructured documents on a data lake or even inside Office 365. And what we need to be able to do is, is use these models to extract useful information out that I'm interested in. Now, GPT-3 seems almost entirely useless for that. I can ask GPT-3 who's the Queen of England, and it seems to know a lot of common sense. But if mm -hmm. I want to extract out some semantic information from my documents about something I care about, it's useless. Well, are you sure? Because if, if you use something like BERT, it still, it still requires like training data to fine tune uh, the thing, right? Whereas in GPT-3, you could just potentially throw all of your customer documents, all of your contracts, all of the things in there. And you could just go ahead and say, think about what you need, provide like two, three examples of the structure of what you need. Don't think these examples that they provide need to be correct. It would be so interesting. Another experiment to do for them is to just simply provide structurally the same grammatically or, you know, the same things, but incorrect things and just see what the model comes up with. Pretty sure the model would still come up with what you're looking for, because yeah, I, I've made this argument in my video that what these models basically do is they go to the semantic fuzzily, go to the training data and filter the training data for whatever you condition on this in-context learning. It's basically a fil you filter the entire training data for all the documents that match that particular structure. And then you, you just run your language model conditioned on that set of, you just interpolate those things. Uh, wouldn't it be awesome if as a company, you just throw everything in there and then you could do that? Well, I'm interested to know how brittle it is. With BERT, for example, I get the impression that I could fine tune it. Even this is the thing with language models. You, you train on a large corpus of text on the internet. It learns some common sense and then you fine tune it on your own domain. My intuition is that if I took a GPT type model, it wouldn't be as good. Maybe I'm wrong. So let's say I take the GPT-3 model and somehow I've got loads and loads of compute that I can access and I can, I can start to continue to train it on my own corpus of data at work. And then I ask it questions because you were saying that it filters, it finds all of the things that, that are similar to that and it cleverly interpolates between them. But surely that depends on several factors. It depends on how much stuff it's been trained on. It depends on how uh, homogenous the data is. It depends on whether there was a critical mass of things on, on that particular topic that it learned. Do you have any intuition on what those factors are? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sheer number 
of data points. I think ultimately the compressed size of the training corpus is over half a terabyte. Is that correct if I remember from the paper? And that's half a terabyte of text, right? We're used to big data sets, but this is text, right? <laughs> it was tech, you can compress text to like minuscule things. So this is a giant amount. I think it's like a trillion tokens or something. And yeah, chances that you will have this in your company are slim. Oh, Isn't that yeah. a reason not to use it then? Because yes, if I start yeah. training, I'm in, I'm in banking and I want to learn about financial defaults or people's financial prospectus documents or something, and I put it in there, would it be a drop in the ocean? Would It, it wouldn't even move the needle. Probably, probably, I, I mean, it's, it's very hard to say, but probably yes. I was just hypothesizing if you had, if you could, right? <laughs> then maybe it would be super interesting to just have your company documents all in this thing that just sort of interpolates. So what do you think about fine tuning? It's very intuitive that we have this new data set and we fine tune the parameters, but so it doesn't make sense to think that you could just put all your company documents in the context and you intuitively you'd want to fine tune it. But maybe fine tuning itself doesn't make as much sense as we think, because for one, it's going to take a ton of resources to do so. Hasn't GPT-3 already learned the best representation of words? Yeah, that's the question. It, it has probably learned the best representation of words on the general internet or on Wikipedia or things like this. We're going to see an era where right now, when you fine-tune BERT, what you do is you take the pre-trained checkpoint that comes from Wikipedia and you fine-tune specifically on your task, right? You, you fine-tune with the label being whatever you want. Maybe we'll see an era where you take GPT-3 or something and then fine-tune as language model. Continue the language model button on your data and then you do this in-context learning to actually answer your task. I mean, that, that, that is entirely, entirely possible. One of the other drawbacks is if I ask GPT a question, it will give me a kind of abstractive answer. Probably what I want in a business context is an extractive answer. Yeah, if I mean you can you can trick it. You you can that's some of what they do in the paper is where because if you, for example, do sentiment classification, you just you don't want the word you don't want any word. You just want the word either positive or negative, right? So you can actually restrict the beam search of the output to just those words. So you can just ask it which one of those is more probable. So you can, uh, you can, whenever you can phrase your question as, let's say, a multiple choice between a bunch of answers, you can just ask it which one of these answers is more probable, and then it will sort of, yeah. Yeah, another paper that I really like is pattern exploiting training, where they, this is the same idea, you, you take some expression that you can append to your task that will give a better use of the language model for answering the question. So patterns like with the, there's like a Yelp review, and then you would, add it was mask to get a label from the language model oh, so this yeah. Uh, yeah yeah so this idea of coming up with these prompts but then the problem is how do we have to manually find these prompts now they in the pattern exploding training they try this automatic verbalizer search where they're trying to find the patterns automatically but it still doesn't look like they have any way of taking the human out of the loop with what kind of additional context you give to it to give it a better answer abstractively that goes into the direction of this math examples which are quite prominent in the paper, I feel, and was what a lot mm -hmm. of people talk about. And I don't know what are, what are your views on on what's happening right there. You already said at the beginning, Tim, like it's it's 
these are strings, right? It would somehow have to learn the decimal system. Uh, it's, yeah. it's so weird. And, but yet, what, what are your thoughts on this, on the math of GPT being able to do math? I don't think it can. I completely agree with your assessment. But, but it's not as black and white as that. It's not mm. just, well, maybe it is just memorization, but there is a nuance to it. It, it is learning some kind of internal structure. Mm -hmm. We've said mm -hmm. before that in days gone past, we would manually create these knowledge graphs and inside our own minds, maybe there's two systems. I know we've spoken about system one and system two. When we verbalize our knowledge, there is a certain structure to it that we're capturing. To what extent is the Transformers model replicating that? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I've, that, that's, I've, I've also gotten a lot of pushback on that and I'm, I'm like, already half convinced that there's more happening, but still not fully convinced. But what, what I found a good, a good comment was that humans, for example, also do a lot of this math as memorization. Like you, you remember multiplication tables up to, you know, 10, 10 by 10. It's, this is, you don't perform the math. You just know it from strings, basically. And all of these, of these like low level additions, you just you know by heart and it's like the argument is that that's just what gpt is is doing basically learns by heart these low level math and that's why it no longer works if you then go multiply three digit numbers yeah like if if you look at the chart it, it really dies it works for like two digit addition and subtraction but yeah. it, this is basically randomly get you, you know you only have 10 possible outputs so this is randomly guessing it yeah you covered this in your thing, Yannick. So surely it's just memorizing. Because if it was reasoning, there wouldn't be such a precipitous change. Exactly. Well, that was my point. Basically, if you think about addition and subtraction, how many websites are there? And we're, we're looking at a, a crawl of the web, right? How <laughs> many websites are there where there's just like a giant table? And one of the columns is surely going to be the sum of some other columns. Right. So, so by yeah. pure language modeling, you will learn to add and subtract. And, and I think that's why addition and subtraction are so, so high on there. Whereas you have, you'd, you'd be much more hard pressed to find a table where three digit multiplication is intrinsic to the structure. And I'm not talking about websites where someone specifically constructs a math table, but it's like, oh, here are the number of people that live in uh, West west side of town and here are the number of people that live in the east side of town and then there's a column total number of people right and it's like so that's I, how you learn i love your conception though you can say that humans are dumb right <laughs> because i think that we do memorize a lot of knowledge if you look at the way that humans learn we are really efficient about our use of thinking it's it's very taxing for us to think so we quite often look at the decisions of others to guide our own behavior. And there are lots of psychological biases like social proof that do that. So a lot of the time we're not thinking. And also with this precipitous change in ability, we, we think of human intelligence as being really general, but it isn't. There's lots of things that we just can't do, like solving traveling salesman problem. We can solve it up to a reasonable number of cities and then we suddenly are really crap at it. Or if we try and reverse the problem and we solve the reverse, which is finding the longest possible path, we're really bad at it. We're good in 3D, we're really bad in 4D. 
so it's it's not so different yeah maybe yeah <laughs> but i mean the the the, que the the big question i think that people have is 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 there an explicit like what we said at the beginning is there an explicit notion of reasoning going on inside gpt3 uh, like or or is that completely absent well it does it does come back to this system one versus system two because i think gpt3 is system one it's exactly the same as you were describing we do many things without needing to think about it consciously mm -hmm. because our intelligence has baked it into a skilled program and that program almost runs deterministically just like in gpt3 it's just a deterministic program one which of course we couldn't verbalize it's been baked by this back propagation program and it's informed by various inductive priors and and so on and experience that's been given but it's now a fully baked system one program it's not reasoning yeah i mean i i i that's actually a good characterization is that if you if you characterize gpt3 as like reasoning or intelligent basically you're saying that system two doesn't exist or something like that because <laughs> i completely agree it's not it's not probably not doing that well, what do you think about this like connectionist idea of kind of like that we can that we store all like maybe it is like because to me it seems like the attention on the intermediate weights could be a way of reasoning kind of so i think the fact that this can do the tran the zero shot transfer kind of points in this direction that maybe it is just system one a little bit yeah that's a good point like is is the is this attention computation is that a form of reasoning like is that's i don't i don't because know. it's I mean, transforming the representations yeah. like in a meaningful way it's true but is it possible to do reasoning in the context of a neural network i think the transformation it's, yeah well, well i mean to say it another way human beings create you know imperative programming code and the constructs in programming code are things like looping semantics and symbols and it's it's a logical one-to-one -one correspondence with the verbalization of how you do something it's an algorithm what you do in a, in a deep neural network is completely different well we we know that these things are like can compute arbitrary functions so from like a purely powerful power analysis, they should be able to do anything. But I think here's the notion of where people think that something like reasoning should happen like it happens in your head. Like you have to sit down and go like, okay, logical step one, logical step two, logical step three, right? So we can't, we almost can't imagine a system that it does reasoning that doesn't do that we think like some there's got to be like a module in there to retrieve a memory and then a module to update that and then a forward simulation or something maybe you maybe the this is just a human-centric view and the reasoning like the function that is actually being computed the exact function not an approximation the exact function that's being computed can also be represented by a simply forward pass through attention layers it's entirely possible. I don't know. But then there's a difference between representing it, because I think system two is the intelligence that creates the system one skill program. So when you have a new situation, which is similar to something that you haven't seen before, and you need to create a new skill program, that's when you need the reasoning. 
yeah, it's debatable how much you can do that or how much you simply go more abstract. Like if you see there's a situation you've never seen before, I'm sure you've seen it before in some abstract way. Like, okay, you've never been to London, but you have been to a new city before, right? You've never, you've never been in a, in, in, I don't know, in, in the Philippines, but I have been in a country before that where my, the culture is not mine. And so I kind of know I have to adapt in that way. You know, the question is, can you really generalize to situations that you haven't seen before ever? Or is it just that you can generalize into situations and transfer their abstract properties? Well, in that situation, you would have a taxonomy of skill programs, which you have learned elsewhere, and they would all have a degree of generalizability. And you could fall back on those skill programs and your system too would learn to recombine them as you, as you acted in that environment. Yeah, I have another kind of funny example. So we were dry, we were headed to Trader Joe's and as is common now, you see this long line outside of Trader Joe's because they're, you know, filtering it to keep it empty in there. So we come up and there's no line. And so quickly we're like, what's happened? Why is there no line outside of Trader Joe's? But it's not like we've never seen no line outside of Trader Joe's before. It's not like it's lined up with aliens or the building is on fire. So we're like, we can be like, whoa, this is out of distribution, but I've seen this before. So it's not like it's blown my mind. But then it's like, so with our neural networks, when they see some crazy out of distribution thing and it blows their mind, right? Like GPT-3 could at least maybe start trying to say something about it. Like our classifiers, they just give you this t awful prediction, but... GP, the abstractive generation models, they can at least start trying to tell you what I think I'm seeing, right? Like moving towards that. If yeah, that well, let, let's, let's play with that. Give, let's, let's come up with an, with an example of something that would be completely out of distribution. What would GPT-3 do? We had this, I think, when we talked about Benjo's thing in that is human consciousness, is it generative or discriminative? Because... In, in all of these models that we have, at least it's sort of, they assume that their input comes from the same distribution as the training distribution. So they, they will have a very hard time to assess that the input that they're getting is very improbable, right? Now, GPT-3 could at least say something like that, what I'm getting at this context, that's improbable. So yeah it makes it makes a case that gpt3 could actually be be like whoa this context isn't something i expect right but then again if you give it a novel task it is also something that it doesn't necessarily expect so i, I don't know but it's a good point that gpt3 might actually be able to recognize out of distribution well my intuition is if you give it an example which is well off the manifold and presumably there there are a combinatorially many permutations there are many things way off the manifold than there are things on the manifold if you gave it something off the manifold it would just not know what to do what what would it do just just generate garbage most likely well, thing it's the same as humans do you just put them in a situation where they're completely lost what do they do either they like uh, freeze or they run or they 
cry. I mean, it's <laughs> it goes. No, but, like, but there's there's a difference, though, because humans. First of all, we I would imagine we have a taxonomy of skill programs, but our skill programs generalize so much more. Whereas the deep learning manifold that we've learned, you know, we had that energy based surface that we were talking about. It's it's very very small. If, if you give it something just slightly off the manifold, you're lost. Well, what do you think about like so? This is one paper you can see my screen where they're trying to like they mix in the data with like explain the task would be like explain nli premise and then so they want you to not only give the answer but then explain this do you think this could be a promising direction towards like added distribution like explanation and then you can get a sense of it that if you said something like explain and then you give something that's completely unexplainable or <laughs> yeah like maybe okay. it's like a way of getting a sense of how they're yeah. thinking maybe i mean that would still that would then require that the human interpret what the model says right it's because the model would just output the words i cannot explain this or something like that i'm not sure if that's the same because for the model that would still be in distribution because the 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 fact that it produces that still means it can actually answer the question but I guess it's a different question from asking what happens if the input itself is like completely out of distribution for the model. And then I would argue it's just going to fall back to because the, pro the, the conditioning information is so weak because there's no signal, it's just going to fall back on its prior. And that's the English language. So it's probably just going <laughs> to produce a probable sentence. Like, I don't know. I think the, <laughs> these, these, when, when Google introduced this, I heard a, a public talk about this when they introduced this auto respond, not auto respond, like quick response for Gmail, right? These there are three <laughs> things you can click one by one. And they, they tried, I think they tried generative first and so on. But then <laughs> it turned out that it would always start with, sorry for the late reply. <laughs> and it was like, whatever, whatever input, it's like, sorry for the late response. Yeah, so so that's that's maybe when the the prior is too overwhelming, and and in in a case where the input just doesn't make sense, it's just going to fall back to the prior. It's really interesting that you bring that up because that would have been my expectation. Surely these models would just do something like that all the time. It's surprising yeah. to me that when you look at the GPT three paper, it just gives incredible results. Yes, apparently yeah. with no hacking or tweaking or massaging. Yes. Is that surprising to you? Very. Uh, well, in in some somewhat, it's it's so surprising. Like it's not surprising if you just do language modeling because all it has is that context, right? And if it wants to do better than random, it better gonna start paying attention to that context because <laughs> that's the only way it gets a better like a lower loss. But that then what you're saying that it then actually generalizes to give other context and it does something useful and not just falls back. It's, it would be interesting to experimentally see how far you can push it, how far you can push garbage into that context until it actually breaks, until it just mm -hmm. always gets back to the most probable sentence. Is it possible to conflate an autoregressive model and an encoder, you know, like a denoising autoencoder type model? Sure. Or, or to bro to broaden the question, are we barking up the right tree? Do you, do you think this type of architecture is what we should be looking at? 
Well, I guess it depends on what you want to do, right? This is this is a this is an enormously good language model because it can throw all its power into predicting the next word, and not like Bert, it, you know, has to pr like predict all the words at the same time and whether the two sentences are follow one another. Uh, this this can just this can be like full blast. Next word is the only thing that matters. I suppose my intuition is that a bidirectional model would learn more about the structure of the language, but it's easier to train an autoregressive model. Is, is that fair? Maybe at like scale, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, once you scale up bidirectional, you know, unidirectional, it's all okay now that we've <laughs> trained on tons of data. With, with BERT, there is this horrible quadratic layer-wise layer time complexity. So they had to truncate the input size to 512. If that restriction wasn't there, I would I would imagine if you could train a much longer input size in a bidirectional model, surely it would give much better results than an autoregressive model. Well, the the the, mm -hmm. the autoregressive one has the same complexity. Like it's it's also a transformer. It has the quadratic complexity just as much. And but well, it has a much longer input. So if you think of the like original transformer of the original attention is all you need paper, you have two inputs, right? You have the encoding part and the decoding part. And those those have internal attention. Right? So in, in that case, the encode, if we translate to this to our thing, the encoding part would be this context, whatever you give us this in context. And the decoding part would be whatever you have output so far. Now you can construct this in very different ways, but at best you're going to to basically half your the size of the thing. So in where in BERT everything could attend to everything in every single layer. Now you have attention internally, but that only like that gets you like to d square half or or d half d half squared. It's not like you're you're significantly reducing the complexity of the transformer here. So it has. It has the same limitations. And the reason it can take 2000 tokens as input is just because Microsoft has built like this big of a computer. That's the reason. Are, are there any trade-offs to having a longer input size? Is longer at some point worse? It's a good question because with a models like LSTMs, the answer was definitely yes. There, There is a point at which you have so much information that, you know, you can only encode in this much hidden state. So at some point you overload. I still think yes, in transformers, at like if you throw information and information in there, especially correlated information, that is going to at some point be detrimental. But maybe because something like a, a CNN, for example, has a receptive field, which yeah. means you, you can feed in as much information as you want and it will only use this receptive field. Is it a similar concept with transformers that even if you fed in a huge amount of information because of the attention mechanism, it would only pay attention to the substructures and the symmetries and, and it would ignore everything else. So it kind of wouldn't matter if you fed in more information. Yes, possibly. I mean, as a like the the problem I see is really when you input correlated information, and you might you might know this from simply doing linear regressions. If you have correlated features or logistic regressions, it's horrible because you could technically, if you have two very correlated features, you could technically predict the output from one or the other. So, and then 
through due to noise in you know your stochastic procedure in one step is going to push one up and the other one down and in the other step it's going to do the exact opposite so they're like it's like ah oh, should i pay attention to this no to that no to this no to that but this works well but that works well as well and you'll just end up with like a very fuzzy very confused model um so i think there's definitely a point where too much information conditioning becomes detrimental but well, I think they even show that in the paper where more examples doesn't help, like with the yeah. demonstrations. And and also, I think that's the reason why they also limit the training corpus, because if you, you have to filter out the garbage samples, right? And, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the same thing where you want high quality data where you can actually predict something. Because another observation is just like in images, CNNs had this inductive prior that presupposed that local connectivity between pixels was important and global connectivity was not important. And with documents, for example, if you look on average how long is a document, it's probably not that big. So at some point, if you had a huge receptive field, you would be wasting all of those potential um, attention points between tokens because no document is that long. Maybe there are some documents out there that, that are huge, but maybe if you had an infinite receptive field and documents could attend between each other when they're talking about similar things, I, I guess I'm just trying to reason. I'm trying. I'm trying to play with this a little bit because at, at some point, if you go past the average document uh, length, you, you would be wasting that representational capacity. But maybe if you just infinitely increased it, it would be a good thing again because you would encounter other things that you could attend to in a useful way. Well, well, here's the, here's the point. If I guess if you had much longer receptive field, you could input more than one document. But the question is, which documents do you input together? Because you can't just take two random ones because what you'll teach the model is that the second one follows the first one, right? That's, it, it thinks like, oh, this is a sequence that happens in nature. And if you just input two ra like random things after one another, it's it's also more confused probably. And y like keep in mind the, these transformers, they don't have an explicit actually they don't have an explicit constraint on, on the input length. You could actually technically input any in the same transformer. So in BERT right now, you can you could input a, a sequence of length ten or a sequence of length ten thousand. Now the First problem with the 10,000 sequence length is that the position encodings have only been trained up to mm -hmm. 512. But that's a that's like a minor point. The major point is that your GPU is going to explode. But <laughs> in the same model, the, the transformer has no notion of the sequence length. It is it is a set com set computation algorithm that just sees elements of the set. Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly right. So that these positional encodings are kind of like the sinusoidal functions, and that's the yes. only way it knows that one thing was before another thing. So you are right. You can only put in one document at a time because you can't really impute a, 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 an, an ordinal or a relationship between documents. I mean, maybe you could you could invent yeah. it. You could say, well, it comes from the Wikipedia bucket, and it was this one was created on a Wednesday, and this one on a Thursday. But but the interesting. Th Thinking point, though, is what if you could get 
the layers of a transformer model to attend to the layers of another document. Do you see what I mean? So there, here's another similar document and I want this to be able to attend to that document. And I could dynamically oh, yeah. pull the other document out because I've encoded it and I could do some locally sensitive hashing or something. Would, would that be a good way to go? Uh, well, that's, it sounds like awesome. If you could, if you could do, if you could like forward prop and then ret because I've, I've um, basically come up with, and I, this has been done. So people in, in my very helpful, like my comments are the most helpful. <laughs> my YouTube comments are like way more helpful than any reviews uh, of my papers or any, any of that. So, so people have pointed out this has been done where I said, surely, you know, if the model is, is, is learning to interpolate the training data in a fuzzy way, then you should be able for each output you generate to pinpoint back to the like, here are the five training examples that led to me uh, making this decision, right? Now, maybe we can spin this a bit further and say, okay, I could do that. I could like forward prop, and then I could retrieve the training documents that are most relevant, put those in the context and, you know, be able to explicitly attend to them, not only through the weights, but it it's, it's sort of like, Right now, we're trying to distill all this knowledge and what I'm arguing is mem fuzzy memorization of the training data into the weights of the transformer. But if you were to build an architecture, like by programming, what you would have is like a database where you could retrieve things, you know, and then attend to them. So we're, we're basically trying to build the, the logic and the, uh, the knowledge itself into these weight connections where i think what's missing here are explicit memory modules where you store and retrieve information and have the transformer itself do the computation on that information rather than both so would that be like matching the query with the nearest neighbor in the training data or would it be like i have this this path through my transformer made the most influence on this prediction so i'm gonna see like what had caused the biggest like magnitude gradient change during the training like which yeah, mini batch i don't i don't i have no clue like i <laughs> i'm just thinking like this but what you're saying tim is 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 like super interesting if if that were now i feel that's sort of out of reach right now out of the computational right capabilities but it's like super fun to think about this could be yeah the next step in these transformers i'd, I'd love to explore this because you said, I want to know, here's the output I got, which examples that I trained on have led to this output. Now in vision models, you did that thing on Chris Ola's feature visualization and you can say, well, here's an output neuron and I'm going to solve an optimization problem to generate the input, which maximally activates that neuron. And, and that's quite a good way of going backwards in vision architectures. And I'm not sure how your setting would work here on the transformers model. Would you find the intermediate representations for all the different inputs and then you would trace back from the output and you would then do a vector search and you would find the ones that that were most similar? Because you were talking about something quite interesting. You said basically it's a memorization machine. And what if we actually took this to the next level and we created some symbolic reasoning and we explicitly made it into a memorization machine so we took in a representation we, we we stored it in memory we turned it into a computer program essentially a kind of hybrid would that be more interesting and would it give us more transparency in the way that you want 
Yeah, I mean that's a sort that's one of the one of the the next thoughts you can spin from this is exactly a direction like this. Basically, what my my argument was that if I train whatever a logistic regression or a, a one of the smaller vision models, what they learn is map features to outputs in the in the way they have to they have to abstract. But as we go larger and larger and larger amount of weights, and and just just from you know from the trend of doing larger models from the output of what these models can produce i strongly feel that they are more and more actually memorizing the training data in in the sort of fuzzy way i described and where as opposed to extracting features and and predicting based on those so i maybe the most basic imagination would be something like during training like build a reverse index from weights to training examples where you said, oh, I just passed this training example and it influenced this weight here a lot, right? Now index just from this weight index back and maybe you could update that during training. You see other samples in that update that weight even more. You can like kick the first one out again, but then you basically have this reverse index. And then if you forward prop your test sample or your context, your question, you would simply observe main, maybe the, the self gradient, the gradient on its own output, or you'd observe like the forward prop signal and see, ah, these connections here, they're really important. They're activated right now. Let's go back in the reverse index and see which training examples led to. And I feel this could be, first of all, explainability wise, that that could be massive and again this has been done like people tell me this has been done i haven't <laughs> read it but uh, if you're interested check out work that has been done it could be explainability wise super interesting because you'll see ah okay here is what the model you know basically you can it's it's explained by example it's like oh this yeah. output yeah you know here are the things i i base it on and second it could actually be the next sort of search engine right if you like the fuzzy search engine through your documents you throw your documents in there and then you know you you just type something and it will just pop up oh here are things that i found on your computer that are relevant you've got a continuum on one side of the continuum is it's just memorizing stuff and in your gpt3 video you gave an example of an utterance and and it was very very close to an article that you could find on google yeah what if it's more sophisticated? What if it is abstractly generating tech and being far more nuanced and intelligent than we realize? How would you measure that? Ooh, that's a hard question. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Pro probably you would measure it by, uh, yeah, how abstractly it is interpolating the training data. Because ultimately, if if you see that it is really working on the level of the idea and the abstract concepts, it's hard to devise a test for this, but I think in the outputs of GPT-3 right now, you can clearly see in these news articles, for example, that it has probably just taken a bunch of these and pushed them together with grammatical structures that it has learned. And yeah, it's, it's very hard to test for that, I I wouldn't know how. Yeah, because all of our metrics for this are, are rubbish. Yes. And 
it makes me think, what if we went back to first principles and, and had a much simpler language model and we generated our own corpus using some grammar and we could come up with some kind of a level of abstractive text generation and we could understand which factors influenced it. I just suppose at the moment, if we're just using this huge corpus and this huge language model, it's impossible for us to, because it would just generate anything and it and it would be really good and it's impossible for us to reason about or measure the abstractness or intelligence of that generation sure but then Oops, I, I mean as i i i agree but then if you if you do this kind of thing on your abstract task where you know how it's created then the question is you know so what how like what does that have to do with the real world yeah. It's, it's the, inter the eternal question between people that work on toy problems that they understand and people that work on the real world. Like, the, we don't know what the real world is. Yeah, I think this is a great example of this, where they have, they construct this toy data set where it's Charlie is big, Charlie is blue, and then you learn how to combine the rules. And then, so then they start to scale this simple toy thing up into more complex language, and then they try to take it to the question generation. But I do agree with Tim. I think we need better generalization probes. I mean, like better tests, even if it's like a toy data set that can, you know, layer, level up its complexity to, you know, match something like squad or a more complex data set. Yeah. Yeah. I just have no intuition how we would even start because one, one thing we could do, let's assume that all of our training data was perfectly spaced on the language manifold and we could start by inputting an article. Of course, what it's going to do is complete that article. And then we did a mixture of two articles that were next to each other on the manifold and presumably it would interpolate halfway between those two articles. And do you see what I mean? We need to come up with some framework of reasoning about its behavior and it feels to me that we're a million miles away from doing that yeah absolutely we have like nearest neighbor probes kind of that you know i think that's the most popular visualization is we love to go see what's the most similar document in our in our representation or i think with images it's a little easier to think about you know which dog image is the most similar to this but then you have this entanglement between the k nearest neighbors it's on top of this representation i think yeah and have you, could you, this radioactive data, I think I've seen this before, but it, that seems like very much something just from the title, something cool. that will go into the direction of. Yeah. I thought this paper was really interesting. It's, it's like, uh, so you take your like uh, batch, your SGD batch, and you're going to like put some signature in the data such that it <laughs> comes out into the model. Like you put these little encodings like you know just like kind of how we put these little encryptions on our images like a watermark you know that doesn't show yeah. so maybe like i was thinking about listening to your idea that, that maybe we could like sign our mini batches of text data <laughs> in the token tokenizations maybe something like yeah. that yeah that's smart i mean this this here is probably also for if you want to detect if your personal data was used to train a particular model or something like this. I mean, that's, yeah, but it is, yeah, it could be a way to find your way back to the original, the training examples that gave rise to something. Yeah, it's, oh, it's quite smart. Yeah, it's a bit like adding a watermark. Yes. Yeah. 
My, my intuition is, though, even in a CNN architecture, but in a Transformers architecture as well, they're, they're very clever at taking shortcuts. And your watermark would just represent a different path through the network. It wouldn't necessarily help you locate the thing that you're interested in. It would just be a different thing in the network. And if you use the watermark in a lot of different places, it would be quite a well-trodden path through the network. And it wouldn't, if it was on a picture of a mountain or, or an article about a mountain, there wouldn't be a pool between that article and the watermark you created, if that makes sense. I imagine there's a lot of overlap between like, if you can easily find an adversarial example, you can also easily yeah. encode the watermark. So you'd have to trade off like it's going to be, it can't, you can have like adversarial robustness and then also be able to put these watermarks through the network, right? Yeah, I mean, the watermark is going to, if, if, if your goal is really that if someone trains on this data, I'm going to spot this in the output. I guess the, the, the watermark is almost equal to an adversarial example, because what you want to do is kind of align the features such that, you know, it, the output is very, very weird. I haven't read that particular paper, but I'm pretty sure the mechanisms are going to be exactly the same as adversarial examples. So I was going to ask you, Yannick, about the other comments you got, because I noticed on your Chalet video, I was surprised to see some people uh, laying into Chalet. And Chalet is my spiritual <laughs> deity. So I was very pissed off about that. It turns out that there are some other people that have different opinions about measuring intelligence. Uh, who, would, who would have thought it? But um, what comments did you get about the GPT-3 paper? What, on, on the Cholet thing? No, nothing to do with Cholet. Just what comments on the GPT-3 paper? Well, yeah. I was just saying, I, I, I uh, was exasperated uh -huh, when I yeah. read your comments the about haters. Cholet. The haters. Yeah, because <laughs> Cholet, I would just like to say officially yeah. that Cholet is the, is the man. He is the, one of the pillars of the deep learning community. And if anyone wants to have a go at Cholet, you have to come through me first. <laughs> but That's very, we'll, very we'll noble. I know. I mean, I've got to do my bit for, for France and for Cholet. But we'll, we'll get back to Cholet next week. I don't, we should keep our powder dry on Cholet. Yeah. We, are, we are going to do Cholet justice next week. But in the meantime, yeah. what comments did you get on GPT-3? I guess most most people with like substantial comments were were talking about these there's reasoning ability uh, either agreeing or disagreeing of of what it you know is it doing reasoning or not and specifically like the math part you know is you know is that is it feasible that it learns this as a language modeling task or not yeah it's just a lot of lot of opinions and very I mean I've I've learned a lot just by reading these comments. So that that was pretty that was pretty cool. I thought I think I got I got no zero comments on this news thing, right? Because what I so if people haven't seen this, what I did was basically GPT three was asked to complete this news article about I think the Mormon Church or something now ordaining <laughs> LGBTQ ministers and then there was a split in the church and so on. So it was asked to complete this news article from like just the title and like the, the first paragraph or so. And I could basically show that if I could find, because they say, well, we've deduplicated the training data such that this news article wasn't in the training data that we got the title and subtitle from. But I was basically able to show that like, 
a lot of other, I think I've shown one, but I found like a bunch of news article about the same thing or books that, that quoted, not quoted, but not verbatim, but basically books that had as a source that news article that were using like extremely similar language to describe like same sentence structure, couple of words switched, where I feel the, the deduplication efforts of, so if, if they show, look, you can produce this news article, I'm not super convinced because I think it's kind of seen almost that news article before. So, you know. <laughs> there's there's a couple of things there though. One thing that I think is is good is that was quite a specific event. I would imagine that there were not many news articles talking about that event. So I'm impressed that on a huge language model, because you know we were talking about the mm. specificity and diversity and scale needed to, to move the needle on a large language model. Because I'm, I'm in the industry and I want it to learn about financial defaults or something, I'm in banking. And we asserted that my corpus wouldn't push the needle. This seems to suggest to me that you can push the needle with a small number of training examples. Presumably well, it, it's learning a taxonomy. So there, there are lots of concepts in there. It knows about what LGBT is. It knows about churches. It knows, you know, so it, it's all of these things are activating in the network and they're being kind of combined together and it's learned that and it can retrieve it given one example. That's, I'm not, that's I'm good. I'm not sure that it learns what these concepts are. I mean, the, the other extreme would be to simply say, here's the title this is the training example that, or these are the three training examples that match that title. Now just interpolate them, whatever they are. And this is actually, I can make a credible claim that that's happening because one of these articles who I found was from Google Books and Google Books is one of the corpuses that they have used in a, in a prompt, like in a dominant fashion, they use like different weights to different corp, corpora, corpuses, corpi. Corpora. Okay. And, and Google books was pretty weighted up. So, uh, it's arguably, it has seen that particular example multiple times. And given that it has so much weights, right, it's possible that it has used a bunch of these weights specifically for that or similar, similar articles and doesn't really know what LGBTQ doesn't really know what Mormon means in, in, in that sense. Right. So yeah, that, that's kind of the two extremes and I have not gotten many comments about this, which I interpreted as no one's no one wants to debate me about it. There's also the observation that, you know, we were saying that most humans are um, like drones. They don't really think for themselves. For example, if I was to go out <laughs> and write an article on CNNs right now, what would I do? I, I would go and read a book on CNNs and I would go and read some articles on CNNs and I, and I would do exactly what GPT-3 is doing. So you can yes. argue that there is a, a agency and uh, autonomy has limits. Yes, but it's so, not the same as, as a news reporter that, you know, sees things happening and then synthesizes, you know, this news story. Right. It's not because there are all, all there are already so many texts about CNNs. There's nothing really left to do but interpolating them. But a, a news, a journalist that, you know, you give a title and you say, please, or even if you're, if you're in, allowed to invent an essay, it's just a, here's a title of an essay, write. You are going to come up with something much 
less interpolated than GPT-3, I would argue. You're going to come up with something that's more interpolated maybe in the concept space. You're like, I'm going to tell a story. It has a beginning, there's a conflict, and then the conflict gets resolved. But I'm not, yeah. Mm -hmm. I love the way you articulated that because if I'm writing about CNNs, for example, you know, we were talking about the convex hull. And if it's, if it's a topic which has been maturing for a significant period of time, that convex hole will solidify. As you say, if, if a new event happens tomorrow and I started blogging about it, that thing would take shape and it would evolve. And sometimes yeah. things change over time. Our, our, our politics and our views about things change over time. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, I mean that's an, an entirely different problem with things like GPT three, right? Here, as you crawl the entire internet, and so first of all, to the point before, five hundred gigabytes of text data, like really, a lot of stuff is going to be repeated over and over. Like, no deduplication can save you from the fact that you know there's like <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's kind of over and over and over in there. Okay. But second of all, of course, it's a snapshot. It's like some of these things are old. Some of these things are from sources that are sketchy. Uh, some of, you know, it's, it's so that there's an entirely different aspect. And I think that's one of the aspects that, you know, in GPT-2 and general in the, you know, the fairness community, that's, that's very prevalent. If you, if you input data from 1950, uh, you're going to get output from 1950 and, and that's so that's a question i had for you what what are your thoughts on the on the dangers of of these mod because in gpt2 especially but i think in gpt3 the broader impact statement is five pages long or so uh, on like these things like let's say fake news generation with that and so on what are your thoughts on this oh no i was just gonna say that i do think that you know, a lot of it has to be a publicity play, don't you think? Like most people don't really know how to read these papers. I, it's just not most people, but a lot of people. And I think they want to keep this like mystery to what they can do. <laughs> At least like the eyes of the tech well, investors. Argu arguably, it's going to be a short time until this is available, you know, public. I mean, think of things like deep fakes, right? It, it's, it's been like maybe a year from the point where it was, you mm -hmm. know, kind of working in academia to the point of where I can just, you know, have an app on my phone and be like, deepfake. <laughs> Coming back to what you said a second ago, when we train classification models, we, we have more rigor about, you know, stratifying the, the, the training set. For example, you know, we would balance the, the, uh, the cats and the dogs because we don't want dogs to be over-representative and, and dominant in the model. And that level of due diligence is impossible to do in a natural language processing model. Mm. First of all, some articles will just be doubled or tripled or quadrupled. Does that mean that they have more impact? But the other thing is if you look at all of the different directions that the model learns, for example, gender vectors or racial bias, or it might be learning lots and lots of things about 1950s England, but not things about now, and once we develop these really sophisticated machine learning models, they are, they're so heterogeneous and diverse, we couldn't possibly balance their training in any meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that and, makes sense. 
But do we want to? If you think about it, the convex hull of our physical reality, it has a shape and that shape is evolving. Well, the now, question is just if I have a snapshot of that, that's, go that's always going to be out of date. Let's, let's just care about, care about the date right now, historic versus current, right? It's like any snapshot of the, of the internet is necessarily going to be out of date because I've kept, even if I downloaded the whole internet yesterday, it is, <laughs> it's out of date by at least one day. That's given that every website was written yesterday. So even everything's well, evolving, but you know. That, that's an interesting trade-off though. So there's the time thing. Now, if we only trained it on the data from yesterday, it would be super up to date and it would know loads of gender pronouns and so on, but it wouldn't have <laughs> the scale. So yes. there's a trade-off exactly. between, I, I want to have more training data, but inevitably I'm going to have to give it older information. But yes. there's also the specificity and personalization aspect. So it would also be good if I partitioned the data so it was only in London, in the United Kingdom, and then it would know about all of the colloquialisms and all the things that we're talking about. So there are always trade-offs to be made. Yes, maybe that's another actually thing for this reverse index thing where you could say, uh, I condition, I only want the weights where these particular training subset uh, mattered for training or something like this it would be i mean this is kind of what they do with this in context learning where they say you can sort of condition it but what you're saying is basically i would i want a model that acts as if i only had trained it on data from london uh, i mean that's that's going to be very hard but like a cool idea well yeah that's personalization but then there's bias as well yeah. I so, mean, so what? What if I want to remove meaningfully ge a gender bias? Well, you, first of all, I have to come up with like a, a definition, which people are still arguing over what that even means. Um, but I guess, presuming you have a definition, I I also think that there. I mean, th this is still an actively developing field. This whole fairness, bias removal, and so on. There are lots of opinions and techniques. Uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not qualified too much to give something here, but going back to my initial question, like what, specifically, let's talk about the dangers of fake news. Like this, this is brought up. It was brought up in GPT-2. It's brought up in this broader impact statement here. I believe I actually haven't read it fully, but I think that was one of the points. And it seems like this is a you know a thing that people say, oh, this can be used to generate fake news. And my question is, is that a problem? Well, let's say you have like a, not even GPT-3, but like a GAN that can produce like this video. Yeah. That could be a huge problem, right? Because you could make these videos of like these crazy things that are happening and then hit the social media thing and then outrage. <laughs> well, exactly, right? That's, that's one of the things I see, I feel, with the fake news, it is people are people already know that whatever is written must not be true. I think pe with video, people most people think if they see a video, it it might you know be deceptively cut or something. But certainly the the pixel information is what actually happened. But most people are probably aware that word information must not represent like 
it's possible that it doesn't represent the truth. Like some someone could be just writing, you know, crap and <laughs> fake news, right? Someone could be writing a lie. And it seems to me that the argument you'd have to make is that the the ability to now automatically do this instead of manually is somehow dangerous. So do you, do you think, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I have yet to hear an argument that this automatically generating of fake news is a, is a dangerous thing. It, it's not a dangerous thing because we have authoritative sources. So it doesn't matter if you can generate realistic looking text. People know that you're not an authoritative source. I think the real problem is bias. Just to use another example, what if we felt as a society that we should have diversity in colors of car? You know, there should be green cars and yellow cars and orange cars. And at the moment, people have been buying more orange cars and we think it's incredibly unfair. And the kind of society we want to move to is where there are more blue cars. So what we need to do is we need to stratify our language models to make sure that blue cars are represented um, diversely. Well, there, there, are like, there are like 10 different layers of this problem. So. First of all, I mean, this is an unpopular opinion, but I've been arguing this. We should, we should, like this term of debiasing or unbiasing and so on. Like what you're describing is biasing. Like, let's be like, it has a bad rep, a bad connotation, but statistically you want to bias the model because what you want to do is say, okay, here is a world that I would like to have, right? I would, here is my world that I aspire to. Right. And I want my model to conform to that world. Right. I, I, and that, that's irrespective in the case, what you're saying of with the cars, and that's absolutely has nothing to do with what the real world looks like. Like you simply say, I want this distribution of cars. That's what I aspire to. That's my ideal. And therefore I will bias my model towards that. Now that's a different thing from saying the model isn't representing the world as it is, right? For example, I've seen a paper recently that makes a credible case that regularization is one of the drivers or can be one of the drivers of bias in models where let's say it's, it's actually very simple, right? You, you have the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and the, drive, the Ferrari drivers and the Lamborghini drivers. And you want to make a model that predicts the accident probability. Now, it just so happens that the Ferrari drivers are a bit more reckless and, and they do slightly higher accidents, right? And now I train my logistic regression and it tells me, okay, 60, 40, cool. But now I train my logistic regression with an L1 penalty. And I say, I want my model to be, you know, explainable. I want my explainable model. And so I want it to be sparse. I want the least amount of variables to be contributing to it. What's the model going to say? The model is going to say Ferrari drivers, bad Lamborghini drivers, good. Right. <laughs> so I, I think there are, there are two very different concepts here. One is one. And I think we should frankly separate the, the subfields here because one says these models by some, by how we train them, by what loss functions we use, by what data we input to a certain degree are not representing the the data as it occurs in the world 
Like they are not but, representing the, 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 the cumulative distribution of data. And the other, the entirely different field is saying, here is a, a state that I want to achieve. How can I make the model achieve that? So in the one case, you can legitimately speak about debiasing or unbiasing. In the other case, it's actually biasing. But to play devil's advocate, people Asian would say there are structures of interlocking oppressions in society and people have been moving away from buying blue cars because their perception is that blue don't, don't work very well and the existing world model tells them not to buy blue cars so even though we want to move cars, buying blue cars that there are all of these blockers in the way well okay there i can again think of like two different sub-genres here where you could you could so one is this this compounding effect where you say because the world is in a certain way we train our models the models might be you know a bit regularized so they're a bit biased and the models actually inform the people that then will only go more into this direction which will train the models if we update them more into that direction and so on so there's there's that uh, which is a problem of course if you use model and then train on data that comes out of the process you're going to just amplify and amplify in, in certain cases like you can argue that it doesn't always happen but i think that's not exactly what you were saying what you were saying is there is like in society there for whatever reason there is a process that's steering people away from blue cars right okay let's say that the yellow car lobby the evil yellow car lobby um, is steering people away from blue cars and that's not right and it shouldn't be because blue cars are exactly as good as yellow cars or like a more concrete example the the grain lobby right grain lobby breakfast is the most important meal of the day that's a marketing slogan like people think it's a health slogan but it's it's a marketing slogan to sell cereal and you can say well you know actually lunch lunch is as important you shouldn't just eat breakfast and skip lunch you can just eat lunch and skip breakfast um, and and uh, the, the whole society somehow has this wrong notion but and here is the the point that's still in that second camp that described initially because the data of the world the state of the world is such that people eat breakfast that people you know eat more breakfast because they think breakfast is the most important meal of the day and what you're describing is still a world that you would like to get to where people don't differentiate between breakfast and lunch. I, li I like that. Another way to verbalize this is politically you have conservatism versus progressivism and conservatives want us to have a strong memory about how things have always been. And progressivists want us to forget everything we've we've learned over generations and just to dynamically evolve very quickly. Well, so would, as a thought experiment, I, because I guess there's, there's like there's a lot there's a lot to disagree here. Um, well, well, but but, but, but yeah. just to, just to continue this thought, these models, the, the reason you could argue they are unethical is because they increase our memory. So what they do is, if we've trained them on concepts from the 1950s. They will stop us. From, as I said, in, in yeah. London now, all of the cool kids are using all of these colloquialisms and so on. And if they use that on their CVs, they won't get the job because the model is still trained on the 1950s. So there's an argument to just get rid of the model or to somehow impute stuff into the model. 
the war against AI will be fought with sentences like, okay, boomer model. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, well, to compare it to conservatism, I would, because I guess a conservative would say they memorize things because they want to learn from the things that they've memorized and not necessarily that they would, that they would always stick to them. And maybe a progressive would say, I still remember, but I want to change the things that are, have not worked. And, but you, you, I mean, you are right in that a model from the olden days would actually just, I mean, what it does is it sees every data point equally and it is going to aggregate over everything that it, you give to it. And it's going to think that the average of what it sees is the world today which is not true, right? The average of what it sees is actually 1975. And there's, there's this discrepancy. So the model, but, but the model has no notion that this data point is out of date. If you gave that to the model, then I like your analogy would, in my opinion, become much more uh, relevant. Because we're getting to the age old thing that we do in machine learning. We start to incorporate and inductive priors or temperature parameters. One thing we might do, for example, is decide that recency is important. We do this with online ridge regression, for example. We have a sliding window. We, we assume that recent information is more important than old information because maybe we're going into a new regime now and the old information won't help us predict stuff about the new information. But we are also throwing away a lot of knowledge. So as machine learning practitioners, we need to tweak all of these knobs and levers and we need to establish what the best representation of this data is. And it seems like a completely arbitrary process. Absolutely. Like, I think... In these, in these types of models, and I don't think that has been considered in language models yet, but there, this must exist because there has to be like a notion of, I can extract timeless principles from data, no matter how old it is, right? That's why people go back to Marcus Aurelius and, and Plato and Aristotle, because they had, they just wrote down timeless things that are as applicable today as they were in, in their days not everything that they've written down is applicable today. So th these models, I feel if they are trained on ever growing amounts of data that comes from different time periods and whatnot, they should have a notion of, of what sort of information they must extract. And that seems very hard. Like that means you'd have to understand, wait a minute, I, I, can probably write this down on my smartphone nowadays. And Marcus Aurelius, even though Marcus Aurelius says I should write it down on my clay tablet, but I should write it down nonetheless. Like that's the timeless part. W without grounding, that's going to be super hard. Yeah. Immanuel Kant, for example, was racist. He had some incredible ideas on philosophy. He introduced consequentialism, for example, but he was a racist. And now we look back and we say, well, um, we, well, we, it doesn't discredit his other ideas, but that's, that's something that he thought which we now no longer think is, is, is right. And maybe that might happen to some of these older philosophers as well. Maybe we'll decide that this particular viewpoint is no longer something which is relevant. Yeah, but how how do you make how do you make that distinction between this is I mean even 
that's an even more complicated thing because that is somehow on the level of abstraction that is actually an abstract idea racism right that we changed our mind on right we've we've somehow we've somehow as a society gotten past that and and recognized more of the the individual value of every human being and so on and you can argue that has also gone with science because a lot of these things were based on like junk science but also it's like society evolves and and the, the consciousness of society changes and i mean how are you going to teach that to a model like it's it's one thing that it says oh you know clay tablets aren't a thing anymore because there are no more clay tablets but now it must also recognize wait society changed its mind about this particular abstract issue it's I mean, it's going to be a long time before we have really solid methods of dealing with that thing and i don't i don't know what to do about this i mean as you say there is this immense trade off if you want more data you're probably going to have to go back in history and you're just going to increase that history that recency or unrecency bias but in a way there is a recency bias because we are producing exponentially more data all the time yes even uh, now yeah. the when the philosophers were around in the medieval times not much information has gone on record from that time so if anything we need to oversample from that period well but how how much of the data we produce is just uh, copies of the philosophers thing but what you could hope is that their copies adjusted to the modern times right that would be the the perfect actually the perfect training data would be people you know taking taking marcus aurelius's work but translating it to the modern times says what marcus aurelius says is that you should write down uh your dreams and you could do you you might do so on your smartphone now, i've no i don't think marcus aurelius was into dream journaling but, yeah but that's if like that would be the perfect training data because you'd have this exponential production of data but you'd keep this timeless knowledge around but that requires humans right that requires i i don't i'm not sure how the machine itself could do that it shouldn't matter that we've got so much oversampling and duplication of data now because we're just learning a language manifold but i want to be able to do with language like what we can do with gans in faces you know now you can uh, i want it to have more hair and i want it to have a beard and glasses and so on and perhaps we can do the same thing with language we can have slide bars to say well i want it to be a bit more medieval i want it to be a <laughs> bit more united kingdom and and yeah. we can start to get control over this manifold in dimensions that we care about yeah i think the best way to do that is to fine-tune the model though right like you just start fine tuning. I want you to write positive articles, right? <laughs> and then score it with reinforced learning or auxiliary classifiers. Yeah, I mean, this in GANs, this only works because these are on this face data set, right? And the faces, they can only have like 10 to 20 attributes if you're, if you're, if you're serious, right? That, that are really significantly different. They're like all super pretty aligned and, and you can have, you know, your hair color and your, whether you have glasses or not, but ultimately, if I gave you a language model and say, here are 100 relevant latent directions, but I'm not gonna tell you what they are. It's just, those are the directions of the 100 principal components, basically, of maximal variance that are also disentangled. You'd have no clue what you'd be doing. 
<laughs> like, uh, it's like me using like a video editing software, like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, yeah. that was a bit of a bombshell then. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. I think there are the, the, the big parts of this development are yet in front of us and also like big challenges, like, uh, like this big corpora, we've no clue. We don't even have a clue what's in them. And how do we deal with the fact that, you know, information is old and uh, things like this? It's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think that is a suitable place to round off the episode. Yeah, thanks such, uh, folks. Next week, we're going to be back with Francois Chalet. The, fa the fabulous <laughs> Don't forget, uh, we are on all major audio podcast platforms now as audio like as sound because we sound so beautiful <laughs> we, we made, do. made it to all the platforms so if you enjoy that more yeah check us out there fantastic see you next week folks yeah cool peace out peace <laughs>